0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. You guys found your way to your seats without even being asked. I don't know if that's, you know, you're just trained or like, you're just like, can we please get to this? Um, Or what's better? Yeah. Good morning. Thank you again. Please open your Bible to Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah is going to be somewhere in the middle of your Bible. If you open there, and you're probably going to land in the Psalms, maybe the Proverbs. Just keep going right a little bit till you land to Jeremiah. We're going to be in chapter 13. If you're new to reading your Bible, the large numbers on your page are the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to begin in chapter 13, and we're going to read the entire chapter. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist, and do not dip it in water. So I bought bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist, and the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days the Lord said to me, Arise and go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. And then I went to the Euphrates and I dug and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. As For as the loincloth clings to the waist of the man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. You shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we indeed not know that every jar will be filled with wine? Well, then you shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash them one against another. Fathers and sons together, declares the Lord, I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for the light, He turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with no one to open them, and all Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourselves have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, Why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert." This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and your names, your lewd whorings on the hills and the field. So woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will it be before you are made clean? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray now that you would help us to see, with eyes to see, and hear with ears to hear, the truth of our need for you and your grace. As always, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with an illustration I think that is fairly universal to all of mankind. And that, of course is the spoiling of a good thing. Maybe you're like me and you've opened up your fridge and you've smelt something slightly odorous. You're not sure what it is. And so you dig a little bit and deep, forgotten, in the dark part of the refrigerator all the way to the back is that tuna casserole you made about two weeks ago that you never finished and swore you would have for lunch the next day but didn't bring because you secretly hoped and planned to buy pizza. And so you take it out, and what do you do with it? Well, you certainly don't eat it. It would have lost its flavor at that point and probably would make you pretty sick if you did, and so you scoop it out, hold your nose, or maybe, again, if you're like me, you just dump the whole container, Tupperware and all, in the trash, and you've written the whole thing off as a loss. Or maybe you've taken something out of your closet and you've noticed that's a bit more tattered tattered than you remember. You've left a shirt or a jacket outside. It's become bleached or torn up by the elements. And it's kind of beyond repair. The holes are a little too worn out or too wide. You can't sew it. You can't keep it. And unless you save it for rags, it's really also now good for nothing. And it's destined to live forever in a landfill with the other things that have no use. Now, of course, for this analogy to work, we have to pretend like recycling doesn't exist because, thank God, we can reuse, in the case of garments, the fabric. But the point here is clear. What do we do with things that no longer serve their purpose, that are broken? Well, Jeremiah obviously is using an analogy, an image that tells us how the Lord views His people when they no longer are fit to be called His people. If you recall from the New Testament, Jesus uses the same kind of wording and speech as well. He says that his disciples should be like salt among the nations. Salt as a preservative, but also as a flavoring tool. But when salt, he says, loses its saltiness, what is it used for? Throw it on the ground and let it be trampled under feet. Or in John chapter 15, those which should be bearing fruit, when they fail to do so, are cut off from the vine and are burned. So there's obvious something about our life that God in His Word wants us to see that we ought to be useful, that we were fit and made to be in a certain way for God's purposes. So Jeremiah is using these object lessons, these sort of parables about this linen cloth or about the jars of wine as a teaching tool to remind Judah who is on the brink of disaster what they were made for, and how far fall short, uh, short they fallen from what God's intended purpose was. So God gives Jeremiah this object lesson on how Judah's corruption has rendered it essentially unfit to be God's people. He uses words like spoiled and good for nothing. We see that it's their pride which has caused their downfall. And now God intends to humble them, to remind them, that He created them for a particular purpose which they have failed and now rebelled against. They have shirked off their obligation as God's people. And worst of all, they are now unable to even change that, this about themselves. Like a leopard is unable to change his spots. So Judah's only hope then is God's grace and His mercy, this unmerited favor and kindness by God. They must cast themselves upon his mercy if they hope to be redeemed. And for this, they would have to first repent and return to the Lord with genuine hearts. And so, like Judah, friends, you and I, we too are marred and broken by sin, by the sinfulness and the corruption of our own hearts. And so we often act contrary to the purpose of our Creator. We were made for a particular purpose, and because we are marred and broken by sin and corruption in our hearts, we act contrary to that purpose. We do not walk in unity with God or in conformity to His law. And so in order to be spared a judgment against a holy God, we must recognize that redemption can only come from Him alone who is able to save us, whose arm is outstretched in righteousness, who Himself is sinless and unmarred or corrupted by sin. So we see two aspects, two major ideas this morning. First, that sin ruins us. But secondly, that grace redeems us. Sin Ruins us. This is really the point of this chapter that we are ruined by sin. And we're ruined in two ways sin first corrupts, and secondly, it destroys. Sin corrupts, and sin destroys. See, man was created for communion with God. We were created to have a relationship with God that was not meant to be broken, which was meant to exist for eternity in perfect harmony and unity and communion. But that was broken by the fall. Man was created for communion with God. Look at verse 11. It says that as the loincloth clings to the man of a waste, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, that there might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, though they would not listen. So Judah, Israel was formed with a particular purpose in mind, to be God's people. But even in the garden we see Adam and Eve created for a particular purpose, that they would be God's people. And though they rebelled. The image of the loincloth teaches us that we were made to to have intimacy with God, to experience the kind of relationship where we are known by God and we know God perfectly without sin. This is difficult for us to comprehend because our minds are so damaged and corrupt by sin and darkened by the futility of our own sinfulness that we cannot fully know God in the way that we were intended to in the garden. We certainly do not have the intimacy with God as Adam did, walking with Him face to face in the garden or the knowledge of God. So we have intimacy with God, which was stolen by sin. But in the second parable there of the wine jar, which was meant to be filled with wine, we see that we were made for the blessings of God. This parable here that he says that every jar should be filled with wine is a bit of a proverb, a truism, which is dismissed as obvious by most people. But here God says that they've missed the point that if wine jars are of course meant to be filled with wine, why have they gone and filled themselves with others? A wine jar or jug that is not filled with wine is something that is contrary to its purpose, just as a loincloth which is tattered and spoiled is no longer fit to be worn. So in the case of the wine jar, we see that man was made for the blessings of God, to walk in fellowship with God, to know Him, without the hindrance of sin. But Judah's pride, we see, has separated her from fellowship with God, and he has invited not the sweet wine of God's blessing, but now the bitter wine of God's wrath, that they must be drunk. Man was created for communion with God, but we see in the early chapters of the Bible, that because of the fall of man from this communion, mankind now exists in a state of fallenness and in a state of corruption. When Adam transgressed the command of God not to eat of the tree, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was a fall from grace. This is why we call what happens in Genesis chapter three the fall. There was a fall from upright perfection and holiness with God. A fall from grace. You may hear that man is ultimately or inherently good, that mankind in its deepest core is basically good. And some would suggest this is true, but this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that we were originally good, but now we are corrupt. This is no longer the case. We are not basically good, but now we are essentially corrupt. And though, of course, there are many ways that God graciously restrains the evil in our heart from overflowing in its most wicked ways, keeping us from acting as wickedly as we possibly could, as often as we possibly would want, that very presence and the necessity of the restraint in the first place is proof that all have fallen short of the glory of God that there are none who are righteous, no, not one, that none that seek after God. Man exists in a state of fallenness and corruption. And this imagery of the loincloth which was spoiled or this jar which was filled with all the wrong things and therefore shattered and broken because it was not fit to be used in its proper way reveals to us something about the nature of our own sin that is important for you and I to understand as Christians. First, it teaches us that sin is contrary to the purpose of your creation. That if you were created with communion and intimate fellowship with God, to experience and to know the blessings of your Creator as you walk in relationship with Him, then sin is not just simply a violation of the command of God, but is something that actually is contrary to the very purposes of God for your life. It is contrary to the very purpose of your creation, even if, in this fallen world, sin is inevitable for each one of us. That is, when we fall short and violate the command of God in the New Testament, or we fail to live as God intended us to live, when we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, to honor our brother and sister, or to seek the good of others and our neighbors, that we are acting contrary to that which was our purpose in creation and for which you were put on this earth to achieve. Each one of us has been given a particular mandate by God. He has a particular purpose for each one of our lives and his purpose in this world is to lead us in holiness and obedience that he might use us But sin runs counter to those purposes. Sin is a running contrary to the purposes of God for your life. And this is now especially true for us Christians. For we've been given a new heart. We've been given the freedom to live for God. Ephesians 4 tells us that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Or Colossians 1 chapter 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 1 tell us the same thing, that we were called to walk in accordance to the calling of the gospel. And when we fail to do so, we don't simply make a mistake, but we run contrary to that which we were created, or in the context of Christianity, recreated, to do. So firstly, we learn about the nature of sin, that it is contrary to the purpose of your creation, even if it is inevitable. But secondly, we learn that sin is like a cancer that will destroy us unless it can be cured. Sin is like this disease or a plague that once it finds its its grasp in your heart will only spread until it is ultimately and fully, finally eradicated. Sin is like a cancer that will destroy us unless it can be cured. And it is the plight of all of mankind to be born into this world after Adam with this disease. It is indeed hereditary. And all of those who are sons and daughters of Adam are born into the world with the disease of sin, which grows in our heart, and that will ultimately, fully, finally destroy us unless it can be eradicated. So we see, like the loincloth here, we, before God, are utterly good for nothing. The imagery here, this divine act or parable that Jeremiah goes to do is really meant to show Judah that they have really rendered themselves unfit. They have lost the purpose for which God had created them and called them to live. And this is not simply unique to Judah, but to all of mankind. Before a holy and just God, we see that the sin of our hearts has ultimately corrupted us before Him. We cannot measure up, we cannot answer, we cannot give an account. We are guilty before God, corrupt in all of our ways. From the most righteous and moralistic person you know, down to the most evil person on the planet, before God, we are all guilty and corrupted by sin. Sin ruins us not only in that it corrupts us, as we saw in the two parables of the loincloth and wine jar, but it also will inevitably destroy us. Verses 15 through 27 here are really just three poems that represent the violence and the damage that sin will bring about in our lives and in the church. Notice what it says in verses 15 through 17. It says here that you should be listening to the Lord. The Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord now, your God, before He brings darkness before your feet. Stumble the twilight mountains and while you look for light, He turns it into gloom and makes it in deep darkness. The picture here is of a shepherd watching their flock, sitting on the side of the hill, waiting for the the sun to rise, only it never rises and only gets darker and deeper. They sit in twilight, awaiting for the sunrise but in their rebellion against God, they only receive darkness. It says, if they do not listen, the soul of Jeremiah weeps for his people. Bitterly, tears run down his cheek as he knows they will be taken captive. So, one of the, the violence and the damage that sin brings about in the life of a believer is this darkness, the futility, the stumbling around without a purpose for if you do not fulfill the purpose for which you were created that to glorify God and enjoy him forever as the Westminster catechism teaches us then it is then you wander aimlessly trying on one purpose after another like a cloth like clothing at a clothing store we are left in darkness stumbling around on the hillside we are willfully turning ultimately to a permanent blindness Sin left unchecked like a cancer will take our sight from us. But it goes on in verses 18 through 19. This poem shows us that pride ultimately will be exchanged for shame. Say to the king and his mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Geb are shut up with no one to open them and all of Judah is taken into exile wholly. Taken into exile, that which was the crown of Israel's glory, of Judah's glory, the the throne of David now sits in ruin. The crown, no doubt, was taken as plunder by the invading armies. The pride of God's people now sits to their shame. So darkness not only blinds the those who are in unrepentant and unchecked sin, but also they suffer humiliation in shame, as God humbles them. Ultimately, we see that sin leads to their own defeat, a sort of self-inflicted harm there in verses 20 to 23. Lift up your eyes and look to the north. See that the armies are coming. Where is that flock that was given to you, this beautiful flock? What will you say when they set you set as head over you those whom you yourself has taught to be friends. This is that self-inflicted. You've given yourself so often to the other nations. What's going to happen when those other nations ultimately come to rule over you? You'll live to regret it, he says. Will not the pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And you'll wonder, well, why are these things happening to me? And he makes it very clear that it's for the greatness of your iniquity that this is happening to you. So you'll suffer defeat at the hands of those whom you have praised and sought to be like, and it will be only your own fault for having chased after them and giving them, calling them friends when they were truly your enemies. Again, sin will lead and grow like a cancer to ultimately your own rejection. There in the last part of verse 24 to 27, where God Himself will mete out judgment against the unrighteous sinners, he says, I will scatter you like chaff, driven by the wind. I have measured out to you this portion because you have forgotten me and instead trusted in life. He says, I myself will lift up your skirts, that is, shame them. I have seen your abominations, so woe to you, O Jerusalem. So sin, ultimately, like a cancer, will grow, and at the hands of such corrupt influences you will suffer blindness, shame. Defeat, rejection, even at the hands of God Himself. I think verse 23 best sums up man's predicament here. Listen to what it says. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Of course, this is rhetorical. The answer is no. The Ethiopian cannot change the color of his skin. The leopard cannot change his spots the corruption and the rebellion of our hearts cannot be put down by any human effort. You cannot look within yourself and muster up the strength and courage to change yourself, to make yourself not guilty any more than we can change the color of our skin or a leopard could change his spots. Friends, no meditation no lifestyle changes, no self-help guru or influencer, not even your own hard work and diligence and determination can stave off this unavoidable outcome that when a rebellious heart encounters a holy God, like Judah, you will stand corrupt. You will still stare down the barrel of God's justice. Your sin will destroy you at the hands of God's righteousness. So a bleak picture. Indeed, Jeremiah paints for Judah, for those who refuse to repent, to commit themselves to the purposes of God, to to render themselves useful by God. Indeed, who fight the the unavoidability of their corruption, paints a bleak picture for what their hope may be. But if grace or sin ruins us, the good news is that grace redeems us. See, you and I, finding the spoiled food in the back of our refrigerator or pulling off the rack the ruined clothing, will fairly quickly dispense of that garment if it no longer serves its purpose. But God is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our own. That doesn't simply mean that He is smarter than we are or that we can't comprehend His ultimate purposes. But He's not like us in that He throws away things that we would consider useless. He's not like us in that He would look upon a spoiled garment and say, I'm ready to destroy it, although it is fit to be destroyed. See, Jeremiah 13 is not simply a promise of destruction because they have rendered themselves useless, but a warning of destruction unless they throw themselves at the mercy of God who alone can repair a garment which has been torn or soiled. God's plans are much, much greater than yours and ours. God is able to do so much more, friends, with so much less. Indeed, He's even able to do that with nothing at all. Because He is both immeasurably wise and incalculably powerful. Consider just the power of God, who is able to change the spots of a leopard. and the song we just sang, is changed to leopard spots from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. This speaks to the power of God. And I want to read to you a quote from a man named Stephen Charnock. He says this, that nature renders a man too feeble and indisposed. And custom will render a man more weak and unwilling to change his hue. To dispossess a man then of his self-esteem in self-excellency, to make room for God in the heart where there was none but for sin, as dear to Him as Himself, to hurl down the pride of nature, to make stout imaginations stoop to the cross, to make desires of self-advancement sink under a zeal for the glorifying of God and an overruling design for His honor, is not to be ascribed to any, but to an outstretched arm wielding the sword of the Spirit. To have a heart full of the fear of God that was just before filled with contempt of Him. To have a sense of His power, an eye to His glory, admiring thoughts of His wisdom, of faith in His truth that had lower thoughts of Him and all His perfections than He had had of any creature. To have a hatred of His habitual lusts, that had brought him in such sensitive pleasure. To loathe them as much as he had loved them. To cherish the duties he hated. To live by faith in and obedience to the Redeemer. Who was before so heartily under the conduct of Satan himself. To chase the acts of sin from his members. And the pleasing thoughts of sin from his mind. To make a stout wretch willingly fall down. Crawl upon the ground and adore the Savior. Whom before he out dared is a triumphant act of infinite power that can subdue all things to itself and break those multitude of locks and bolts that were upon us. Or in other words, we are so weakened and corrupted by sin that to humble and transform us Replacing our self-exaltation with God's presence, breaking our pride, redirecting our desires towards God's glory, requires the mighty power of the Spirit of God. We cannot do it in our own. To be transformed from a heart of contempt to a heart of reverence, from sinful pleasures to despising them, from Satan's grasp to faith in the Redeemer, from a defiance to humble worship, this triumph and triumphantly displays God's power to overcome all and to break our chains. Yes, friends, sin ruins us, but the power of God is able to break us from our sinful passions, to heal and to transform us. The power of God works wonderfully in those whom He calls to Himself, despite the brokenness, the spoiledness, the sinfulness of His creature. Where is God's power most wonderfully and effectively displayed? It is in the cross of Christ. This is where God reveals Himself powerfully and mercifully good to us. This is where all of God's faithfulness to His covenant is shown to be true, where His character is put on full display, as at once loving and just. Wrathful towards sin. Merciful towards sinners. The power power of God is most wonderfully and effectively displayed in the cross of Christ. Again, just go back and consider what Judah was threatened with, and they ultimately endured by the Babylonian captivity. They suffered darkness at the hands of their enemy. Humiliation, defeat and rejection but Christ himself would suffer such things for us on our behalf like Judah was threatened with darkness Jesus himself was plunged into darkness though he comes from all glory and splendor he suffered humiliation at the hands of his enemy he endured the shame of the cross in fact by all accounts he was defeated by his enemies on the cross Murdered by his persecutors. Killed by those he came to save. Ultimately, he was rejected by those he came to ransom. And on the cross, he endured the wrath of God. Rejected for us. So what Judah endured on a smaller scale because of their captivity, Jesus endures on a cosmic scale on the cross For us. And yet, in suffering all of these things darkness, humiliation, defeat, and rejection Jesus, the perfect, sinless one, overcomes and conquers. And instead of living completely and eternally within this darkness, humiliation, defeat, and rejection, he is honored and raised from the dead. And so he enjoys glory instead of darkness, honor instead of humiliation, victory instead of defeat, and praise instead of rejection. He is raised to the right hand of God, where He now sits and makes intercession for His people. He bestows on us all of which He earned for us. And so because of this, those who trust and believe on Him, and in His work on the cross, His substitutionary death, and the power of His resurrection... Those who trust in this receive the blessing of God's covenant kindness instead of His condemning wrath. Instead of Judah and their outcome, we receive light, not darkness. Light to walk in the truth of God's Word, to obey, to be fit for what He created us to be. We receive the blessing and kindness of joy to love and serve one another. We are free from sin. The victory Christ secured for us is our freedom to walk in obedience according to his word. That which we were no longer free to say yes to, to God we now are able. But ultimately, we receive the love of God and not his wrath. This is the greatest kindness of the new covenant. This is the gospel that those who... Who were destined for the trash heap of history, spoiled because of sin, corrupted because of our darkened heart, ready to be destroyed, and facing the impending wrath of God against sin, was redeemed by God's grace and Christ's cross. That's the power of the gospel, who's able to take those who are broken sinners, condemned to suffer for eternity God's wrath against all their unrighteousness, can look to Christ instead of being ruined by sin, are redeemed by grace. This is because of the power of of God which works wonderfully and effectively in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, this is your hope. This is that although you fail, you can continually be renewed and restored and redeemed by God. That if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, You can look at your life and see where sin is continually working its corrupting influence, but have the power now by God's Spirit and the power of Christ and His cross to say no to such sin, to overcome such corrupting influences. You're going to look to Jesus, His work and His resurrection as proof that those who are still marred by sin in this world will be resurrected to a world where there is no sin, where all is made right, where we are clothed not with the tattered rags of our own insecurities and sinfulness, but with the white robe of Christ's righteousness. But if you're not a Christian this morning, or you recognize you do not have the kind of understanding or faith in that work, you're not trusted in the gospel of Jesus' death for you and His resurrection that works powerfully all that He has accomplished on the cross, then friends, it is your job now to consider your nakedness before God, consider your ruinedness before God, your state of the soul of, of before God and know that without Christ you stand condemned and that the future only holds darkness and defeat. But if you cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus, if you look to the cross now and you hear the words that I'm saying as your only hope for redemption and restoration, then you can be assured of this, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what's true even in Jeremiah 13, that they still could repent and turn. Hear and give ear and be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Friend, hear what the Lord says to you. That though you are lost, ruined, beaten by sin, you are tattered like a garment wasted away that is pulled from the wreckage. God's power and Jesus' grace is enough to restore you, to set you free to walk in power and in glory and obedience. But it is by faith and not by work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. It is a simple truth, Lord, that I I intend to proclaim, God, that we are sinners in need of grace and that indeed we are sinners saved by grace. I pray for any heart here who has not experienced and fully known the redemption of your grace in Jesus that has not fully taken hold of the truth of the gospel, that they are sinners that they are condemned, that they have rebelled against you, and yet you hold out this free offer of grace. May they take hold of it this, this morning. For us who have been redeemed, God, may we walk in the truth of that gospel, that Christ stood in our place, that he suffered the wrath, and he was tossed aside. He took on all the wrath of God against the sin and the unrighteousness that which ruins us, he who is perfect became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. God, we pray, Lord, that that truth would be so embedded in us that be the fundamental core of who we are and our identity as Christians would be that we are redeemed, that we would walk in that truth for your glory. As always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more, or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.